Welcome to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I'm Kyle Hyman here with our good bishop, and we always like to start in prayer. And with Pentecost around the corner, you've got a special prayer for us today? Yes, it's one of my favorite prayers. I often pray it before meetings, the Come Holy Spirit prayer. Okay. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Come Holy Spirit, fill the hearts of your faithful, and kindle in them the fire of your love. Send forth your spirit, and they shall be created, and you shall renew the face of the earth. Let us pray. O God, who by the light of the Holy Spirit did instruct the hearts of the faithful, grant us in the same spirit to be truly wise and ever to rejoice in his consolation through the same Christ our Lord. Amen. Our Lady, Seat of Wisdom, pray, pray for, for us. us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Welcome to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. Two men from the Fort Wayne South Bend Diocese will be ordained transitional deacons this weekend. And on this episode of Truth and Charity, Bishop Rhodes talks about the significance of this last year before their priestly ordination. Then it's on to Pentecost Sunday and what speaking in tongues means. The show wraps up with Bishop answering questions about Medjugorje, why only men can be priests, and more. If you would like to ask Bishop a question, go to RedeemerRadio.com slash AskBishop. Welcome to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I am Kyle Hyman here with our bishop, and uh, we've got several big things coming up. We've got Pentecost on Sunday, which I want to talk to you about. Uh, before that, though, on Saturday, we have the ordination of two young men to the diaconate, and it's a transitional diaconate. Can you talk a little bit about the difference between a permanent deacon and a transitional deacon? So well, sacramentally, there's no difference. Okay. Uh, they're both deacons. They both uh, receive the same grace of ordination. They are configured to Christ, who was the servant, the deacon, the diaconos. So the only difference is that what some call transitional deacons are going to go on and also be ordained priests, mm -hmm. whereas permanent deacons, as the word permanent means, they will always be deacons. They will not go on to the priesthood. And the idea of having almost like a, a stepping stone leading up to priesthood. Has it ever been the case where you would just skip that kind of diaconate and that would be part of the priestly ordination? No, no, okay. no. It's, it's always separate. There needs to be a period of time between uh -huh. when a man is ordained a deacon and when he is ordained a priest. And, you know, it's important to remember that when a deacon is ordained a priest, he doesn't stop being a deacon. Mm. That's a permanent configuration to Christ the servant. So I, I've mentioned that in homilies sometimes because that term permanent deacon, I don't want it to mean people to think that one who's a transitional deacon loses the sacramental character of the diaconate when he's ordained a priest. Sure. Once a deacon, always a deacon. And you say that this kind of period of of being a deacon without being a priest, though, is typical. We usually do that uh, for a year in yeah, this diocese. Yeah, that's, that's the practice normally. I think it's good to have a year's yeah. experience as a deacon. One of the things to, that reminds me that I'm still a deacon is uh, a bishop can wear the deacon's vestment, which is called a dalmatic, underneath the chasuble when he celebrates Mass. Mm -hmm. And I will sometimes do that. 
and I think it's important for bishops and for priests to remember that they have the diaconal character because, you know, it's so essential. It's part of Christ who was priest, that as priest, he was always the servant. Can you talk about the difference between a deacon and a priest, what, what uh, a deacon can do and what some things that you can't do until being ordained a priest? Well, on the functional level, there are certain things only a priest can do that a deacon cannot. Mm-hmm. Obviously, celebrate the Eucharist, the confecting of the, of the Holy Eucharist, only a priest can do. Also, only a priest can grant absolution. In other words, celebrate the sacrament of reconciliation. And only a priest can celebrate the sacrament of anointing of the sick. Deacons could not do that. Now, there are other things that a deacon can do. For example, baptize. He can preach homilies. He can officiate at the sacrament of marriage. And he can celebrate the church's funeral rites. Okay. Um, Oftentimes, deacons might celebrate the vigil before a funeral or could actually celebrate a funeral liturgy as long as it's when it's not a mass mm-hmm. and can officiate at the rite of committal at the cemetery. So these are some of the uh, liturgical things. You know, preaching, the homily at mass is reserved to a priest or deacon. Also, of course, the deacon has certain things that he does at the altar, preparing the gifts and things like that. And a deacon can proclaim the gospel at Mass. So all these are important diaconal functions. I think it's also important to to understand that a deacon, there's a threefold ministry. He is a minister of the Word, which we mentioned. He can preach. He's a minister at the altar, which we've mentioned. But we should not forget the third key aspect of a deacon's life and ministry, and that's the ministry of charity. From the very beginning with the ordination of those first seven deacons that we read about in the Acts of the Apostles, it was to help the poor. Mm. Um, So that's an important thing. Deacons are called to especially exercise this ministry of charity, which can take all kinds of forms depending on the deacon's assignment, but I see deacons as taking kind of a role of leadership in the charitable works of the church. And we're not just talking about the materially poor, it could be those who are existentially poor, mm-hmm. but I think of the the deacon's ministry in hospitals, in prisons, other places, especially to the marginalized people who are suffering. Do you remember your time as a deacon before you were ordained priest? Yes, I do very well. As a matter of fact, I was ordained a deacon by Cardinal Terence Cook in uh, St. Peter's Basilica in Rome at the Vatican. So I was a deacon for a year, but I did not exercise that diaconal ministry here in the United States. I exercised it in Rome and... uh, primarily at a hospital, at an Italian hospital. Hmm. But I also spent two months serving as a deacon in Spain when I was uh, in the summer after I was ordained to the diaconate. So I served in two parishes near Salamanca. And we mentioned that we're having an ordination to the diaconate for two of the seminarians, Jose Arroyo, Dan Neeser. They are going to be ordained on Saturday, 
May 19th at 11 a.m. That'll happen at the Cathedral here in Fort Wayne. That's correct. Cathedral of the Immaculate Conception, two fine young men. Really, I look forward with joyful anticipation to uh, ordaining both Jose and Daniel. I'm happy for them, their families, the diocese. So I invite everyone, if you've never been to an ordination or if you have, you're welcome to come and and attend the uh, diaconal ordination of Daniel and Jose. And what happens at a ordination mass for the deacons? Well, as you mentioned, it is a mass. So it's in the context of the celebration of the Holy Eucharist. The readings obviously have to do with the diaconate in some way. And there's a calling forth of the uh, candidates. They're presented to me. Then I give a homily. After the homily, they do make what's called the promise of the elect, where they elect means the chosen. Okay, so they basically declare their intention to assume the responsibility of the office of deacon. They promise celibacy, and then they come forward and they kneel before the bishop and make their promise of obedience and respect to me and my successors. After that, and this is really important, we have everyone praying very intensely, I would say, a beautiful prayer, the, the litany of the saints. And during that prayer, the candidates, the two men, will, will lay flat, prostrate on the floor of the cathedral, a gesture really of great humility and supplication. But it's the whole assembly praying for them, including the assembly of the saints in heaven. And after that, they come forward and they're actually ordained. That's when the bishop lays his hands on the heads of the candidates. That goes back to apostolic tradition. And after the laying on of hands, then I do what's called the prayer of ordination, a prayer of consecration over them. And when that uh, is done, the laying on of hands and the prayer of ordination, they're the two essential parts of the of the sacrament, uh, at that point they are deacons, they are ordained ministers. Mm -hmm. So after that prayer, they're vested with the vestments of a deacon, the stole over the left shoulder and the dalmatic. And then after they're vested, they come back and kneel before the bishop and I hand them the book of the gospels because it's very symbolic that one of their tasks is to proclaim the gospel and to preach the faith. So that's a very uh, important part. And after I hand them the book of the gospels and I say a prayer, there's the sign of peace. I exchange with them or bestow what's called in the ritual the fraternal kiss of peace. And then any deacons who are present at the mass come forward and give the sign of peace to the new deacons. So the priests don't, just the deacons, those huh. that are in the same order. Yeah. And then basically after that, then we proceed with the liturgy of the Eucharist. So it would be like um, any mass really. So it's a very beautiful, uh, beautiful rite of ordination. And as I said, um, everyone's welcome to come. You mentioned the stole going over the left shoulder. Uh, people might have noticed this at Mass when you see a deacon with a stole on. Uh, that 
that goes kind of at an angle across their chest, whereas a priest would wear it one on each side, kind right. of uh, more symmetrical. Oh, is there any particular reason for that, or is it just a distinction, a way of... Yeah, I don't know of the reason. Uh, there might be, but it certainly distinguishes yeah. a, pre- a deacon from a priest at the liturgy. And then my understanding, the soon-to-be deacon Neeser will be going back to school for another year, finishing up seminary, and soon-to-be deacon Arroyo is finished. He just graduated, so he'll be in a parish for the next year. Correct. And what do you hope that they are able to learn or able to experience as a deacon in this final year of preparation for priesthood? Well, I, I think it will be a good time for them to get into the habit of preaching homilies. I hope they have many opportunities to Uh preach. One of the things that I think is advantageous, having a year of diaconate before priesthood ordination, is that they don't have all the duties of a priest at this right away. Mm-hmm. So they'll have this year to be preaching, to to and and to be continued learning how to preach because that's not something that uh, you know even that's that's ongoing throughout our lives as as uh, the ordained. But I'm hoping they'll have many opportunities to preach and to serve at masses. I'm hoping also they'll have some opportunities to celebrate baptisms. They've already had opportunities of bringing Holy Communion to hospitals and and to nursing homes and, and to the homebound, but I'm hoping they will also exercise that ministry and, and whatever really is needed in the parishes where they will be assigned. Soon to be Deacon uh-huh. Dan Neeser, even though he's going back to the seminary, he'll have a summer assignment here in our diocese at a parish, and he'll also have a parish weekend assignment when he's back in the seminary at Mount St. Mary's. All right, and again, that'll be May 19th, this coming Saturday, 11 a.m. If you're not able to make it to the ordination, you can always listen. Redeemer Radio will be broadcasting that. We've got Sean McBride, Ken Hellenius from Notre Dame, and Dr. Adam DeVille will be the hosts for that. And also, if you want more information about the seminarians, uh, there's an interview with with both of the soon-to-be deacons in the Today's Catholic in the May 13th issue. Also, we've got some other ordinations coming up. June 2nd is the ordination of the priesthood, and we've got June 23rd is the ordination to the diaconate for the Hispanic permanent class. Uh, we'll be talking about those in future episodes. Looking forward to that. Uh, but uh, coming up, we're going to be chatting about Pentecost Sunday, the charismatic movement, and we'll have questions submitted by you right here on Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. Brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. Welcome back to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I am Kyle Hyman here with our bishop. And we've got Pentecost Sunday coming up this coming Sunday, May 20th. Let's start with description of Pentecost. What do we remember on Pentecost? Well, of course, we remember the descent of the Holy Spirit upon the apostles and that was 50 days after Easter. They were gathered in the upper room in prayer with the Blessed Mother, with the Blessed Virgin Mary, and uh, Jesus had promised that he was send the Holy Spirit, and uh, even right before he ascended into heaven, we read in the Acts of the Apostles, chapter one, that Jesus said, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, Mm. and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And after our Lord said those words, he ascended into heaven. So the apostles went back to the upper room, the same room where the Last Supper was held. It's called the Cenacle in Jerusalem. 
and and really they they waited and they prayed mm-hmm. together with the mother of god and on the 10th day pentecost sunday the holy spirit descended upon them in the form of tongues of fire and at that point they went out they went out into the streets of jerusalem filled with the holy spirit and to proclaim the gospel and we speak of this often as the birthday of the church can actually say the church was born from the side of Christ when the blood and water flowed from his side. But on Pentecost, we can think of how the church was really manifest to the world as the apostles went out into the world to teach all nations, to baptize, etc. And they had the gifts of the Holy Spirit to do so. They had the guidance and the help of the Holy Spirit and, of course, the fortitude and the courage to do so. So Pentecost is really a wonderful feast, and it reminds us that the same Holy Spirit is alive today. Mm -hmm. And the key thing is that we open ourselves to the gifts of the Holy Spirit that we've all received at our baptism and our confirmation. And one of those gifts of the Spirit is actually mentioned in the first reading on Sunday, which comes from Acts of the Apostles, it says, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in different tongues. And I think that that idea of speaking in different tongues and uh, maybe the, the tie-in with the charismatic movement, can you explain what we're talking about whenever we're talking about speaking in tongues? Well, I think a lot of people are confused about that gift of speaking in tongues and associate it with this, what happened on Pentecost. And really, I think we're talking about a different phenomenon. Okay. When the apostles were filled with the Holy Spirit on Pentecost Sunday and they went out, we read that they began to speak in different tongues. But think about the context. It really would be better translated as they began to speak in different in other languages. Mm-hmm. And the listeners were astounded because, remember, these were – The people who were in Jerusalem at the time were from all different countries. They were from different regions, Mesopotamia, Egypt, and other places. And these listeners were astounded, and they said, are not all these people who are speaking Galileans? Uh Then how does each of us hear them in his own native language? So this was kind of a reversal of what happened at the Tower. You know, in the Old Testament, early on, the Tower of Babel, mm. when the you know we read the story of how people who had once been able to understand each other, they ended up being dispersed, speaking different languages, and couldn't understand each other. Hurt unity. So here we have a reversal of Babel. Mm-hmm. We have the Holy Spirit coming. The Holy Spirit is the source of unity, and therefore everyone understood what the apostles were saying, even though they were of different languages. They heard them in their own native language. So this is somewhat different from the gift of tongues, the gift of praying in tongues, which we read about in in other places in the Acts of the Apostles or in the letters of St. Paul. I think the tongues reported at Pentecost appear to be a very unique phenomenon. Okay. because when we read the letters of St. Paul, when he's talking about speaking in tongues, it's in the context of common prayer, like he wrote in his first letter to the Corinthians. But it doesn't mean that people understood. What was he talking about? The charism, really, the charismatic gift of the speaking or praying in tongues, such tongues are unintelligible. 
Mm -hmm. you know, and we could talk about that if you want, what that is. But I think it is important to, uh, I think they're, they're very different phenomena. Yeah. And the, the one at Pentecost seems more practical. To be able to talk to people that wouldn't normally be able to understand you is a great gift. The idea of speaking in what you described as, you know, unintelligible, that doesn't seem so much of a gift that why is there an advantage <laughs> to be able to speak a language that nobody understands or very few i guess there's those that can interpret tongues. those that can interpret that's another thing the interpretation of that yeah but that gift of interpretation but i would still speak of it as a charismatic gift because saint paul refers to right. them as as gifts from the holy spirit um, but keep in mind all gifts of the holy spirit are meant to build up the, the community, not to create divisions. So really, you know, you have this phenomenon in the early church, like in Corinth, of speaking in tongues. In the Catholic Church, this kind of got revived probably around 1960s, when uh, really the birth of the Catholic charismatic movement. Mm -hmm. Although prior to that, in some Protestant churches, especially Pentecostal churches, going back to the beginning of the 20th century, you had this phenomenon of, or, or this return of, of praying in tongues. Mm -hmm. And it, of course, as I said, the, the Catholic charismatic movement, in many Catholic charismatic prayer groups, they will have speaking in tongues. And so again, these are recognized by the church as a charismatic gift of the Holy Spirit. But I think we always insist that this needs to be taken in context in the sense that St. Paul himself speaks of it as one of the lesser gifts. So its importance should not be exaggerated. Okay. Um, you know, St. Paul talked about the higher gifts. You know, certainly the, the gift of love is the most excellent gift of the Holy Spirit. So I hope that's helpful. Yeah. Do you have experience with people speaking in tongues? Oh, yeah. I went, I once, it was years ago. I don't, I, yeah, when I was a seminarian. I attended the Life in the Spirit seminars, uh -huh. and um, so I learned that way about the Catholic Charismatic Movement. And and then, um, yeah, as a priest, there were charismatic groups in, in parishes where I served, so I attended some of their prayer meetings. There are a few still here in our diocese now, and yeah, they have my blessing and support. And again, I think there's different ways to pray. You know, and people have different uh, preferences when it mm -hmm. comes to prayer, and there's no one particular method that's you know essential for all, other than the the prayers that we do in the sacraments, and certainly things like the Our Father. But but uh, people have different ways of praying. Some yeah. love to pray the Rosary. Some like to pray in charismatic groups, pray in tongues. Some pray with scripture. Some like to do all of that. Yeah. Uh, so there is a freedom in that ma manner. Do you think? everybody has the capacity to pray in tongues or because sometimes from St. Paul's writings, it seems like there's some that can do that and there's others that have different gifts. Right. I don't think, I mean, I don't think the Holy Spirit gives that to everyone. Okay. Yeah. I've been in a few different situations where people were speaking in tongues, I guess, but I've never been somewhere where somebody was interpreting the tongues. Is that a common thing? You know, I, I haven't either, Kyle, yeah. so I don't know. I, I don't think it's very common, but I don't want to say that with, with uh, assurance. I, I don't know enough about it. Okay. You mentioned there's some charismatic groups in the diocese. Are there charismatic masses, or is it more prayer groups? I think it's more prayer groups. Um, 
and they might when they have groups where the charismatic group would gather together for mass i would guess that's not unusual okay well, one other thing, getting back to Pentecost Sunday, which was what brought all this up, was uh, one of the things that happens at that Mass is the special collection for the education of seminarians. Oh, right. I'm glad you brought that up. It's a really important collection, and basically because, and I've talked about this, I think a lot of the listeners know, one of the challenges in our diocesan budget is the uh, the budget line for seminary education. Mm-hmm. Um Anyone who has uh, children in college know that it, it can be expensive. Right. Well, one of the uh, things with the increase, and we're very grateful for the increase in the number of seminarians in our diocese, but it, it certainly threw our budget out of whack. And the Bishop's Appeal, which our people are so generous, isn't able to cover all that cost. And it makes it very challenging. So that's why I instituted an annual Pentecost collection, because it's such an important need. The Bishop's Appeal still supports the the bulk of the cost of the education of our seminarians, but uh, we needed some more funding. And that's why we have every year this special collection. So I, and, and people have been generous, and I hope people will be generous again this year. Um, some people also may want to give a gift that will be in an endowment, because I set up an endowment within our Catholic Community Foundation okay. called the St. John Paul II Endowment for the uh, Funding of Seminarians' Education. That's more of a long-range thing that we try to build up an endowment for this purpose for, mm-hmm. which I hope you know people will remember that when they're preparing their their wills and and they're doing their estate planning sure. and all that. I think it would be a great cause to uh, to give to. I mean, what is more important than ensuring that we have uh, well-educated, good and holy priests for the future? All right. Yeah. And uh, if you're able to donate, maybe pray and discern, you know, what you're able to contribute, plan ahead. And if you're like me and do the online donating uh, to your parish and to the Bishop's Appeal, you can also, uh, there's a special fund for the the uh, education fund for the seminarians on the diocesan website, dioceseffwsb.org. You can make your donations that way too, if that's easier. All right. Well, if you have any questions for Bishop, you can ask them by going to redeemerradio.com slash askbishop. You can also call or text the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598. And coming up, Bishop will answer questions about male priesthood, Medjugorje, and more right here on Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. Welcome back to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I am Kyle Hyman asking the questions that you have submitted for Bishop to answer. Therese Saylor from St. Thomas the Apostle in Elkhart said, Could you please give an update on what the church is saying about the apparitions in Medjugorje? Seems to not be talked about much lately. Thank you and my prayers for you always. Thank you so much, Therese, especially for your prayers. I have to admit, I haven't heard much about the study of the Medjugorje alleged apparitions either. A couple of years ago, I wanna say probably about two years ago, we bishops did receive notification that we were not to sponsor official pilgrimages to Medjugorje. Now, people can go and visit, and mm-hmm. there was no discouragement of that, but we weren't supposed to have 
uh, allow official, let's say, a diocesan organized pilgrimage or a parish organized pilgrimage to Medjugorje. Because that would appear as an endorsement for it? Correct. And we're not sure. Yeah. So there was a lot of news at that time, and I think it was around two years ago. There was a lot of speculation that there would be some kind of official report from the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith. That's mm-hmm. the Vatican Department that that deals with these things, that there would be some kind of uh, maybe definitive judgment at that point. Mm-hmm. So everyone was expecting that. Well, here we are. I think it's two years later. So, yeah. um, so really, I don't have any update to give. I haven't heard anything new. But it's kind of a, we don't know for sure if the apparitions were legitimate or not. Is right. I don't, the, I don't the think the church has, the church has take, has not taken an official, you know, we know that the bishops there in the former Yugoslavia and, and uh, some of the bishops that are presently there in Bosnia and Croatia have not believed in their authenticity. On the other hand, there are many other bishops who've you know, have positive view about the authenticity. So this becomes very difficult. It's like sure. you have to have a very careful discernment. So I would say, you know, the most important thing is that people continue to be devoted to Our Lady. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, yeah, and we just have to continue to wait to hear. All right. Kathleen from South Bend asked, where can lay Catholics find an authoritative source for determining the dates for when saints' feast days are to be celebrated, asking partly because of the confusion about feast days that get moved? Oh, thanks, Kathleen. Yeah, there are times where solemnities or on the liturgical calendar might get moved. For example, just this past year, We've ha- we had the, the movement of the solemnity of the Annunciation. Mm-hmm. So, because during Holy Week, it was on it, the date, March 25th, fell on Palm Sunday. Well, Palm Sunday takes precedence. And so, the solemnity of the Annunciation got bumped like two weeks because it couldn't be celebrated during Holy Week and it can't be celebrated during the octave of Easter. Mm-hmm. But other feasts of saints in that do not get moved. If it if they fall during those periods, they're just not observed. Okay. So it's only major feasts like solemnities that would still be celebrated. So there's not a lot of those. I remember sometimes, besides the uh, solemnity of the Annunciation, I'm trying to think what else might get bumped, uh, but there are very few. So if a saint's feast would fall in a time where it can't be observed, it's not transferred to another date. Okay. Now, if you want to know whether it's going to be observed or not, I recommend getting the ordo. Every diocese and every parish has what's this little book we get every year called an ordo, mm-hmm. O-R-D-O, it's, which means order. Mm-hmm. It's an order of prayer, and it's like a Uh, a little book that gives information on each day what mass should be celebrated or what options there are on that particular day what the readings should be that are used or if there's options for readings Mm -hmm. Uh, it also gives guidance for the liturgy of the hours as well as the celebration of mass so all our priests will use this so that they don't make a mistake (laughs) i use it what's interesting and what i like about the ordo is it also lists what priests died on that particular date, or deacons as well, hmm. and therefore you can remember them. We can remember them in our prayers yeah. uh, on that day. So it's really good. Basically, these ordos are are um, 
published for each province. So our province is the Indianapolis province. So all five dioceses of the state of Indiana follow this ordo. Okay. So each province would have an, its own ordo. And I think it's sold in the cathedral bookstore right. um, in Fort Wayne. But I imagine it can be purchased online. I'm not sure. They're published by Paulus Press. So, yeah, that would be a, a good resource for Kathleen. Okay. Vivian Spear from Immaculate Conception in Auburn said, Bishop, I am seven years old and attend St. Joseph's School in Garrett. I would like to understand why only men can be priests. Can you help? Thank you. Vivian, thank you. I think you might be the youngest caller that I've had on my <laughs> Redeemer radio show. You're seven years old. I'm wondering if you're getting your first Holy Communion this year. If so, congratulations. I don't know what grade you're in, or maybe mm -hmm. it'll be next year. Yes, you know, only men can be ordained priests. And we believe this is the will of Jesus because Jesus chose the first priest, and they were all men, mm -hmm. the 12 apostles. And not only that, after Jesus ascended to heaven, the church continued to only ordain, ordain men, believing that that was what God wants, that that is the will of Christ. So it's part of what we call tradition. Now, some people say, well, why does the church? Well, we have to follow the will of Christ. So some will say, well, why did Christ only choose men? And some think, well, you know, this is an issue of equality. It means that uh, women aren't considered equal to men. And that's not true because men and women are equal before God. That is, that's what we believe. But equality doesn't mean that men and women always have the same functions. For example, when we think about the priesthood, the priest represents Jesus, who was male, and his relationship to the church, the church is considered his bride. So we always will use the pronoun she, or often we'll use the pronoun she when we refer to the church. So th there's that important representation. Also, the idea of when you think about who was the respect that or honor that we have for, for women, when you think about it, next to Jesus himself, if we just want, you know, who do we honor the most as far as human beings are concerned, as far as human persons are concerned, the person we honor the most is a woman. And she wasn't a priest, yet she was the greatest saint who ever lived, the Blessed Virgin Mary. And she wasn't an apostle, but she was the queen of the apostles. Very good. Thank you for that question, and thank you for that answer. You can ask your questions by going to RedeemerRadio.com slash AskBishop. You can call or text the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598. We have more of your questions, including a question on how to be holy and a question about the Mass coming up right here on Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. Welcome back to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I'm Kyle Hyman, asking the questions that you have submitted for Bishop to answer. And one of our listeners sent in this message. I heard on Redeemer Radio, good people don't go to heaven, holy people do. 
I understand that. I have tried and continue to try a journey to holiness. As a member of your flock, I would like advice. I am not Mother Teresa. I can't afford to go to Haiti. I work a job and a half. I don't have a lot of money or time. I do attend Holy Mass on Holy Days of Obligation, sometimes daily Mass. Adoration once a week, two women's groups in church, a third one I can fit it in. I'm a proclaimer and an extraordinary minister of Holy Communion. I volunteer with Night to Shine and feed my starving children. Sometimes I spearhead helping a needy family in our parish. I try to make first Saturdays with confession, all normal things. I don't or haven't found any great gift from God that I have to contribute other than I can be nice to people I encounter, clerks, cashiers, etc. I pray, read scripture, pray the rosary, never enough. How does someone like me become holy? Wow, what a what a question. Thank you for that. You know, as as I was listening to that question, I thought that Pope Francis gives a uh, a wonderful answer to the question in the new document, the apostolic exhortation that we I think we talked about on here on Redeemer Radio, yeah. which is uh, Gaudete et Exultate. Mm-hmm. And um, he talks about the journey to holiness, the call to holiness. First of all, I think we have to put this in perspective. Yes, God calls us to holiness, and our response to that call is really a response to His grace, that His grace is primary. You know, we can't earn heaven on our own. Um, The Lord bestows His grace and His love upon us. And really, our vocation to holiness is not about an extraordinary kind of life it means basically doing god's will every day striving to conform our will to the lord's and it doesn't mean that one has to travel to haiti or or one has to do all these uh, extra activities which may be good it means really being faithful it means living the Beatitudes, you know, striving to follow Christ, taking up our cross. So fidelity to our vocation. You know, I often say to married couples that their way to heaven primarily is through their vocation of marriage, hmm. the love and care that they have for their spouse. And if they're blessed with children, their vocation as fathers and mothers the love and care for their children. I would say prayer is is an important part of this, obviously, and essential. We have to tend to our our relationship with the Lord. But I think it's really the daily living of the gospel in our particular vocations. One doesn't have to do all kinds of things, uh, all kinds of things to become holy. One has to live the life that they have, Mm -hmm. and I think the call to generosity is part of that. We should be generous with the poor, with the missions, and and all those kinds of things. That's part of it. Think about the fruits of the Holy Spirit. One of them is is generosity. Another is, is faithfulness. Another is gentleness. These are all signs. If we're growing in the fruits of the Holy Spirit, that's a sign that we're growing in holiness. But I think we have to avoid thinking that we have to do so many things in order to kind of earn 
holiness no mm. uh holiness really in the end is the perfection of charity living that great commandment of love of god and and love of neighbor you know especially when jesus said love one another as i have loved you it was saint john of the cross who once wrote at the sunset of my life i will be judged on love uh, so if you want to know the the uh how does someone become holy if i had to answer it in one word it would be love all right thank you and before i ask the next question could you explain what is the confidior oh the confidior it's latin means i confess okay and it's the prayer that uh we we can say at the beginning of mass i confess to almighty god and to you my brothers and sisters that i have sinned through my own fault etc that's one of the options for the penitential rite there's also the option of those various verses where the priest or deacon says you were sent to heal the contrite of spirit lord have mercy mm -hmm. lord have mercy but the confidior is the full prayer okay then here's the question is the confidior recited at mass an option for the celebrant i notice not every priest recites it also why isn't there a set prayer of blessing by the priest or deacon when they bring the picks to the extraordinary ministers of sick and homebound some just bow, some say a prayer, some just hand Jesus over and return to the altar. A common prayer or blessing would be nice. Okay, the first question, yeah, it's an option for the priest, the celebrant of the Mass, to use the confidior or, as I just mentioned, the other options uh, during the penitential rites. So those are the options that the church gives, mm -hmm. so the priest is free to choose. The other question. Yeah, you know, the church doesn't have, a that I know of, a set prayer or blessing when a priest or deacon gives the picks to extraordinary ministers at the end of Mass to bring the Eucharist to the sick and homebound. They're not obliged to say anything, but they can say a little prayer as they hand the picks over. So I understand the, uh, the caller says a common prayer or blessing would be nice. You know, maybe that would be something good. But the church, as far as I know, there's no official text. And people that don't know what a PIX is might be able to figure out by context, but maybe just <laughs> a, a brief explanation. See, I don't – I'm glad you said that, Kyle. I, I often forget, you know. A PIX is a little container of uh, solid metal, often gold-plated or silver-plated, where we uh, put the sacred host, where we put Holy Communion, and uh, – when we carry it and bring it to the sick or the homebound. All right. Well, thank you, everybody who submitted questions. We appreciate that. Don't forget, you can always submit your questions either online or through the app or by texting us. We'll be happy to include those in a future episode. Uh, before we go, Bishop, could we get your Episcopal blessing? Be glad to. The Lord be with you. And with your spirit. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Now and forever. Our help is in the name of the Lord. Who made heaven and earth. May Almighty God bless you, the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you, Bishop. You're welcome, Kyle. Happy Pentecost, everyone. Join us next Wednesday at noon as we begin a two-part series on the Holy Rosary. For the first part, Bishop Rhodes will talk about what the Rosary is, how to pray it, and how it walks us through the key events of Jesus' life. Then he'll offer a reflection on each of the joyful and luminous mysteries. The following week, for part two, Bishop will cover the sorrowful and glorious mysteries. So take some time to listen and pray with Bishop using the Holy Rosary as our guide for the next two episodes. 
And if you'd like to submit a question for him to answer on a future show, just go to RedeemerRadio.com slash AskBishop or download the free Redeemer Radio app and select Ask Your Questions. Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes is brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. If you're enjoying Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, be sure to check out Redeemer Radio's other locally produced programs, including The Kyle Hyman Show, Dr. Doctor, and Church Life Today. To listen to previous episodes of any of these, go to RedeemerRadio.com and select Audio Library, or download the free Redeemer Radio app onto your smartphone or tablet and listen there. You can also submit questions for Bishop Rhodes to answer on a future episode of Truth and Charity on the app or website. Or if you have a question for Dr. Doctor, a show featuring three physicians from the Fort Wayne South Bend Diocese, you can submit it there too. So don't forget the Redeemer Radio app and website for past episodes of all our locally produced shows. Thanks for listening to and supporting Redeemer Radio as we continue our mission of spreading the good news of Jesus Christ.